Hey, welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we discuss how to invest and build incredible consumer brands. If you enjoy this show and want to be one of the first to get access to new episodes, I highly recommend going to theconsumervc.com and signing up to my newsletter. All newsletter recipients receive a copy a week in advance of new episodes before it's on any podcast network or YouTube. Our guest today is Allison Kane, who is the founder of Haven's Kitchen. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school and a sauce brand that creates fresh sausage in easy, squeezy, lightweight pouches. She also hosts the podcast In The Sauce, which is all about how to build consumer brands. In this episode, we discuss what got her into cooking, why she started a cooking school, and how she created her own sauce brand, her approach to fundraising, bringing on partners, and the current state of fundraising within CPG. Without further ado, here's Allison. Allison, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Well, I'm super pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. Doing well. I want to start from the very beginning, Allison. Like, what was your initial attraction to cooking and going and creating Haven's Kitchen? It really goes back to, I mean, really me as a kid, basically. It was like the kitchen was this place where I felt very happy and creative, where I got to control stuff, where I got to bring people together and make things that made people happy and, I don't know, feel a certain amount of agency, I guess. And it was always that for me through middle school, high school, college, you know, being a young mom. I had five kids pretty early, like starting at 25. And the more that I grew up, the more... I realized that that was very unusual and there were a lot of people around me who had a lot of fear and loathing around cooking in the kitchen and shopping and cleaning and what to make and am I going to make people sick and ugh I don't know and uh, I don't I don't like it and and then and confusion around what was good and all of that I was always teaching. I mean, I started teaching people how to cook in college. Then when I decided to go back and get a master's degree in like food systems and food policy, that's when I really made the connection that this wasn't just something about like personal feeling good and agency and creativity. This was something that really could, you know, affect the entire food system and that the more people that were comfortable and confident cooking at home, the the better for our environment, animals, farm labor practices, you know, really the whole kit and caboodle. What I really appreciate about your story is I feel like when someone really becomes passionate about cooking and really maybe wants to pursue it as their profession, they maybe want to become a chef or they want to own a restaurant. They want to kind of share what their ideas are to the world, which is awesome. And, you know, I'm a huge fan, obviously, of, of restaurants and love, love to eat out. But what I appreciate about your story is that you thought this was a need to really help inspire other people to actually go out and cook and to teach other people. And when it and came about it from more of like a teaching perspective instead of a, hey, this is like an awesome dish that I really hope you enjoy type of uh, way. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two pieces of that. One is that I was always a really good home cook. I was not a professional chef. 
And I don't think I had the discipline. I don't think I had the fortitude. <laughs> I know I didn't have the time. You know, that, that, that was a career path that, first of all, it was the 90s, different era, different time. It wasn't cool back then. You know, there was a lot. And, and I did. I had, you know, five kids under eight. So I wasn't going to be a professional chef. And I also, you know, to your point, I got a lot of satisfaction out of showing someone that they had it in them to make something really delicious. And people who had always made, you know, asparagus that were gray and wilted, the first time that they make themselves a really crispy, bright green, delicious, like charred asparagus, they're like light bulbs go off in their brain. It's addictive. It's amazing to watch people learn and feel great about themselves. I know you also have a deep passion as well that I think you alluded to to with sustainable lifestyle and this idea of like eating a lot healthier. And, and I think that this is part of like what you wanted to accomplish in terms of teaching people about healthy food. When you meet someone that might be interested in cooking and or don't maybe understand quite about ingredient lists or what's actually better for them, what's like a good place to start and where do you feel like you've been able to generate like uh, an impact in that light? I mean, I am by no means the first person to say this. This was a nutritionist named Joan Gussow who started teaching at Columbia in the 1970s. She sort of, you know, taught Michael Pollan kind of everything he knew. And then Omnivore's Dilemma came out in 2010. But it's really not complicated, and I think it's been overcomplicated and over-merchandised to some extent, right? Like, if something grows in the ground, if it is a whole food, if it comes from someplace close to where you live, if it hasn't seen a lot of packaging or handling or manufacturing, it is most likely going to be good for you. Full stop. It really doesn't need to get much more complicated than that. I think what's happened is that, you know, and there's all sorts of research on sort of, you know, the post-war industrial food complex, but we've been conditioned to think that we need things to be fortified, where basically it's because things have been extracted out and then things have to be put back in. But if you're just eating whole foods that are grown near your house, you're going to be getting a good diet for the most part. Absolutely true. And I think that we've definitely seen an area that kind of comes up on the show quite a bit is food that is better for you versus better for the planet. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not always the same thing. There was a debate in the 80s about local versus organic. Kind of, you know, all of these things kind of come and go. Keto is Atkins and, you know, every, everything's like cyclical and these things come and go and trends and whatnot. But there was this whole discussion about, you know, is it better to eat something that has a little bit of pesticide if it's grown locally versus like none if it's grown 3,000 miles away? And like anything else, it's, you know, there's, it's not zero sum, you know, there are choices that we all have to make and choices that you make as a consumer. I think the f there is a little bit right now, there's a lot of marketing going into a lot of products that are sort of um, chemically engineered, things that have higher reaching, you know, goals, you know, get people to eat less meat, do it at 
sort of whatever means you can, you know, and, and make this stuff that maybe hasn't necessarily been vetted in terms of its environmental impact. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I think setting up for the American consumer that you have to choose between good for you and good for the planet, I think that's the problem because that's a false dichotomy. That's not real. If you choose to eat more plants and legumes instead of meat, that is undoubtedly good for the planet and most likely good for your personal health. The marketing around these products, I think that's where the issue starts to come in and the money that's you know poured into it. Yeah, I think also kind of the research around, which again, we're still in like the very early stages of a lot of this type of products, like tech food per se, you know, if it's better for you, for example, definitely, you know, usually it's better for the planet. If it is like a, you know, like a vegetarian alternative, right, or a plant-based alternative to a meat product, then great, you're not killing, obviously, the of the animal. So in that sense, like it is better, but there is that kind of debate about some of the ingredients that are on the label and maybe some of the ingredients being unproven in terms of whether or not they are, it is actually better for you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why, you know, you know, when we made these sauces, you know, I, we call ourselves sort of like diet agnostic, you know, if you are keto and you only want to eat meat because you have decided that that is the right diet for you. And, you know, somehow your doctor has, made that decision, then great. These sauces will make your meat taste better because, you know, meat usually needs a little something, something. If you don't eat meat and you're only eating vegetables, these sauces will also make your vegetables taste better. The key for us is that whatever you are cooking, you feel confident and good making, that you're wasting less, that you're using less sugar and salt, that you're making good choices for you and your community, because those choices really do have a much bigger impact than just, you know, yourself and your your ketones or your blood pressure, or, you know, your insulin. Obviously, you had a very successful cooking school. You obviously had a recipe book um, on the teaching side. What kind of compelled you to start your own CBG line? I mean, I would say two things happened sort of at the same time. So I opened the cooking school in 2012. And like you said, it was very successful, really rocking and rolling, super happy place. Um, somehow ended up being an events venue and a wedding venue and a cafe. And it was just kind of crazy amazing. Interestingly, I didn't know this, but we launched that, you know, we opened the school the same year that Blue Apron and Plated launched their meal kits. And kind of interestingly, I think we had similar objectives, mine in a very small, you know, mom and pop way, those founders in a very big picture way. But the idea is that, you know, cooking doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to take a lot of time. It can be joyful. It can be creative. And most of all, you can feel like a champion when you do it. And that is an amazing feeling. And as someone who has five kids, I can tell you, if you're coming from the place where home cooking is good for the planet, X, Y, Z, that is not debatable. If you tell people you should cook more, that is very unlikely to get people to cook more. If you make it amazing and fun and beautiful, that will make people want to do it more. That's just human nature. So, you know, five years in, we have all these students and they've all subscribed and unsubscribed from meal kits because 
they said, you know, it's too much waste and I feel pressure and they're not making me feel like I'm learning anything. All I really need is the sauce. I can figure out how to make a chicken that isn't rubbery. I can figure out, you know, how to make rice that isn't clumpy. But I can't figure out how to get that like last mile of flavor. And I don't want to put ranch dressing and marinara on everything. So they basically were like, can you just package these things that you're teaching us how to make? You know, they're mincing or they're blending or they're roasting or there's using, you know, ingredients that home cooks, you know, macroot leaves and lemongrass. They don't necessarily have access or know what to do with these things. And, you know, at the time it was, you know, 17 when we developed them, 2018 when we launched them. They just weren't, there weren't a lot of sort of global flavors out there. You know, there's a lot of disruption that's happened in the last couple of years, which is great. But even still, we're the only people doing like fresh, you know, Everything's shelf-stable. Everything's kind of, like, boiled. No one's kind of doing what we're doing. So I think one part of it was just, like, hearing people that would be potential consumers saying, this is a need and, and you're the people to do it. I think the other piece of it was that, you know, we had, like you said, we had this really successful thing. And I had built somewhat of a brand and a reputation. And I felt like there was more that it could do. And I felt like it was more you know, that there was more we could do in people's actual kitchens. That How do I take this nugget of something and not have it be that people have to come here to learn? How can I get like a little, you know, a little sidekick into everyone's kitchen across America and be like, you got this, you can do this, just do this. You know, how, how do I get myself into everyone's kitchen across the country? And I wasn't a tech person, you know, I'm a home cook person. So the sauce is just really felt like they worked, you know? And then they did work, which was lucky, basically. What was your approach? Because obviously you built up a brand in New York City with Haven's Kitchen. What was your approach to building that brand, generating a, I'd imagine you have a very passionate community in New York City. And then how do you then think about expanding that to you know, different parts of the U.S. where people might not be familiar with with Haven's Kitchen, but obviously you know might enjoy your sauces. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could be like, well, this is how we did it, but I mean, honestly, it's kind of a miracle to me. So, in terms of you know the first question of building the brand, I think that the the great thing about coming from a hospitality background is that we didn't really think we were building a brand. We thought we were serving a need. And I think that that is where some people start to make a mistake. You know, when you are genuinely serving a need and you are genuinely there to make someone's life a little better for the 5, 22 hours that they're in your space with you, whether it's getting a cup of coffee, getting married, taking a cooking class, reading your cookbook, whatever it is, You are really, truly focused on them, their life, adding value to their life, right? And giving them something to make it better just for the time that you're with them. That's different from I'm going to build a brand because I'm going to build a brand is about me. I'm going to make your life better is about you. And so that's been ingrained in me and in my team since 2012, So when we did actually sort of expand from brick and mortar to packaged good, we were never coming at it from, let's build this brand. We were always coming at it from, okay, how are we going to show that we're valuable? How are we going to show people that we can make their lives easier and better and make dinner faster and let them feel that feeling of like, I made this at the end, right? Like, 
that's a completely different perspective to have. And I'm grateful that I got it kind of kicked into me in my brick and mortar years because I think it's what has really served us well. In the second part, you know, going national, uh, literally the week that COVID happened in April of 2020, we had a national demo plan all ready to go. We were launching in whatever, 500 stores, you know, Whole Foods across the country. We had the key cities. We had the key teams. We had, you know, the whole map of how we were going to track the demo plans and the merchandising teams. and, And it all literally just went poof overnight. So we very quickly had to, you know, start leaning really heavily into content, reaching people where they were, you know, again, it goes back to sort of the humility, I think, of this brand. Like, we know that there are people that are looking for recipes on YouTube, and we know there are people looking for recipes on TikTok, and those are different people, and they're looking for different things. And we tailor what we're doing to make their lives better, as opposed to this is the brand and you guys need to be a part of it, feel, be a part of our community. We don't need that. We want to just make your life better. I'd love you to, for you to walk us through a little bit of like that period and how you had to be in a pivot and some of the things you had to kind of learn on the fly. Like what is marketing? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we had to learn. I mean, basically we were like, okay, so, hmm. I mean, Courtney, who, you know, is our brand director who, you know, she was my buyer at Fresh Direct and then she came over to like basically demysticize grocery for me because I I had no idea what the hell was going on. And she basically started as like shopper marketing and she made sure that we were like cranking in the 14 New York City stores and then cranking in the 50 regional stores. And she was going to make sure we cranked in the 500, you know, national stores. And, you know, our thesis was, you know, it, it kind of, you know, a playbook. If you If you outperform from a velocity perspective in Whole Foods, your story becomes much easier to then sell a to you know outside of whole foods into the natural channel but then you know conventional and then mass so this was our main goal was crank in whole foods that was the plan we kind of looked at each other on the floor of an airbnb in anaheim the day that expo west was canceled And we processed really quickly that there would be no Expo West. And then almost like within four seconds, we looked at each other and we're like, there's also going to be no demos. So the two of us basically together were like, okay, what's marketing? And we interviewed everyone. Fortunately, I had this podcast, you know, my podcast. So I knew enough people that I could call and we just, we made a chart and we're like, what do we need to do on email? How do we launch SMS? What do we do on our website? Courtney remade our website, literally. What's paid and what does that look like when you're a primarily wholesale brand and we're not actually trying to drive people to buy directly from us? You know, that's a very different type of performance, right? What are all the different social channels? What do each one, you know, what does each one do? Who's there? And we just kind of went like, bing, 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 made a thesis around each, decided where we could prioritize what we wanted to, you know, focus on, tried to learn as best we could, as quick as we could. And, you know, fortunately, I think we have a great product. I think we have a lot of people who really love our product and who probably did a lot of word of mouth for us on our behalf. We nurtured them as best we could. We have great people on this team who, you know, helped push it. 
it's kind of amazing. I mean, we do kind of look back and it's amazing that some of our top stores are in regions where we've never set foot. It, it's, it's amazing. Wow. I love to dig in a little bit more about how you approach content because mm-hmm. it's a bit roundabout, right? You're given that you're primarily a wholesale business. I mean, you know, CPG yeah. majority, it's going to be a wholesale business, uh, despite the obviously uptick that we've seen in COVID. But it's a bit roundabout in that you're not trying to get uh, a prospective customer to shop online. You're trying to get them to think of you when they go in, when they next go into Whole Foods or they go next go into, or even, you know, travel to a store that you're in, which would be amazing. What did you have to do and what were some of the metrics that you then had to see when it comes to how you even thought about like attribution when this is like the goal overall to get the consumer to actually come in store? Yeah, I mean, attribution is very, very hard to your point when you are not sending people to buy directly from you. So, you know, if you just think about something like an Instagram ad, which, you know, we don't do, but if we did, what landing page are we sending them to? If it's a store locator, then, you know, are we clocking how many people go to the store locator? And then are we then mapping how many visits to the store locator, to the velocities in that particular region? To, you know, it's, it's kind of clunky. I think that we have made sort of an overarching thesis that someone who's walking into a Whole Foods or a Sprouts or an Albertsons and they see this pouch of chimichurri, and they are like, A, what is that doing there? Because they're not used to seeing sauce in the fresh area. B, what the hell is chimichurri? C, why is it in a pouch, and what do I do with that? There are so many things that are confusing (laughs) about our product. Of course, none of these I, like, knew were confusing in 2018. I was like, oh, it's going to be great. They'll figure it out. But we have so much consumer education to do. It goes back to sort of like, we never we never thought we didn't have to do that. So we were trained very early on that our job before someone walks into that store is that they have seen this pouch and they've seen it you know, squeezed onto chicken or salmon or a bowl. And they have an idea of, I know what to do with that thing. I know it's going to make my life better and I'm excited to try it. And then part B is it has to look great on the shelf. It has to be, you know, there for them to buy. They have to have a great experience. Then they have to be able to know what else they can do with it. So we don't necessarily think of, we kind of have one foot in sort of the digital camp where, you know, we are trying to build awareness and we are trying to bring people into sort of our brand love, as you would say. But then we also have the second step of, you know, getting on the shelf at any of these retailers is just step one. And we, we spend a lot of time and energy and money making sure that our shopper marketing and merchandising is working. So it's, it's, it's a little bit both. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess it comes back to tie in in terms of how you initially started, you know, Haven's Kitchen and that from that whole consumer education piece. And this is just another way that you have to re-educate consumers and everything. And in this context, more about how you can use your sauces to create obviously delicious meals from it. Why did you decide on the packaging side to go with pouches instead of a jar? 
Number one, sustainability. You know, we, again, this is my background and flexible packaging is just a no-brainer when it comes to metrics around sustainability, energy use, water use, fuel use, you know, emissions. Um, Even if it does end up in landfill, it just takes up so much less time and space than, not time, but space than glass. And unfortunately, you know, people think glass is the answer to everything, but, you know, about 20% of the glass that you put into the recycling bin is actually recycled. The rest does actually end up in landfill. So, you know, in terms of a life cycle study, pouches are by far the most sustainable packaging option. They're not perfect. Again, it's choices, right? There is no perfect. So that was one. And then the other was really, again, about like how do people you know, how do people use these things? What's going to give people the most joyful experience? You know, is it like shaking something? Is it scooping something? Or is it squeezing something? You know, and I've told this story before, but my mom is a retired, you know, speech pathologist, but she's a painter. And every time I would go into her like little painting studio, I would just squeeze these pouches of paint. Like they were beautiful and they they were so tactile. And I would have this like little thought, like maybe I should be a painter. Maybe I'm actually a painter and I didn't know it. And I have all this creative stuff inside me. And I, I am definitely not a painter, but it gave me this feeling like I'm in kindergarten again. And I don't have to be worried about making something good. I can just play and it'll be good because I'll enjoy it. And if we can give people that feeling when they're cooking, you know, I don't have to worry about the tablespoon or the teaspoon, and I don't have to stress about, am I adding too much? Like, all I get to do is squeeze this because I like it, and it's pretty, and it makes me feel happy. That's the kind of feeling I want people to have because that's the feeling that keeps bringing them back, you know? No, I mean, totally. I mean, as well, it looks, I mean, maybe as another point, it looks very different to other sauces from a packaging perspective, which of course in retail is is huge. Yeah, I didn't know that part as much. I read a book like in 2019, 2020 by Debbie Millman called Brand Thinking. And I realized actually that there was something that that piece of the pouch was also kind of cool that if you're looking at, you know, the produce set and you see these pouches, even if you can't read Haven's Kitchen, you probably are starting to recognize us just by the pouch, which is kind of cool, not to make us more iconic <laughs> than we are, but eventually maybe we'll be kind of iconic. But, you know, there, there I... I didn't know that it was so, you know, form factor, distinction. I I would be lying if I said that that was, um, you know, part of my thinking at the time. It wasn't. I know right now you're in the natural channel, Whole Foods, and I'm sure some other groceries. I mean, is the plan eventually to go conventional as well? And in terms of the conventional side, I'd love to kind of hear your perspective of what's been happening on the conventional side, because it seems like natural and conventional has kind of blurred a bit, and how you think about your pricing heading into conventional when you do. Yeah, I mean, so it's funny because, you know, our, you know, our biggest account is Whole Foods. Sprouts is a really great one for us. You know, we are in what I would call sort of like progressive conventional, right? In the sense that, you know, Vons, Pavilions, et cetera, like we're in a bunch of technically not natural channel doors, but they're not, they're definitely, they are focused on innovation. They're focused on, you know, 
younger, newer consumers, you know, keeping up with sort of what's going on in the zeitgeist. Um, But we also in 2020 launched in 600 targets. And, you know, the rule of thumb had always been like, if you're, you know, if your chimichurri is doing an eight in Whole Foods, it'll do a four in, you know, conventional and it'll do a, you know, two in target. That has not been the case for us. So it's certainly not par, you know, but it's not that much of a delta. So what we figured pretty early is it's not necessarily, you know, all the channel. I mean, you know, channels are blurring. Who knows what they are anymore? And there are people that are launching brands in, in Walmart, you know, whereas that used to be just like the, the last bastion. So who the hell knows what's going on? But I will say that, you know, again, going back to if you have a strong gross margin and you can price yourself well, you know, there's going to be, and it has nothing to do with us, there's going to be a range. We're going to be $5.49 at some retailers. We're going to be $8.99 at other retailers. And that is not because of our retail, you know, our distributor pricing. That's because of the secondary distributor, you know, the little market that pays more rent or whatever it is, even Target. Some of them were $6.99, some of them were $8.99, literally. But if we can make ourselves sort of whole, you know, starting at the very beginning by having like good product margins to begin with, and we can have the mix. So some of those accounts are more awareness builders. Some of them are volume drivers. You know, we're, we're thoughtful about the mix. And again, we're proving value um, to the consumer and we can work with, you know, buyers that we have good relationships with to sort of eke back for the consumer what we need to if they end up having to, you know, price us a little bit more expensively. And I think also just being a premium product, and again, that goes beyond we're expensive. It really means we are making your life better. We have a better ingredient panel than any sauce out there. We are giving you lots and lots of ideas and inspiration. You know, we're helping you in the kitchen in other ways. People are over and over. They were in 2001. They were in 2008. People are willing to pay for value. It's not just about price. That said, you can't be a $10 sauce and and work in conventional grocery. It's just not going to work. So there's always going to be a limit. But at the same time, what you're saying is that people, even during you know tough times like 2001 or 2008, people are still going to pay for you know products that they love. Yeah, I think products that make their lives better. You know, I mean, condiments especially, sauces, condiments, marinades, dressings in both of the past economic downturns have had great results. And it's partly because, you know, people are swapping the night out for the night in. And how do I have an experience at home that still makes me feel kind of special if I'm not going to a restaurant? Oh, you know what? This beautiful golden tahini it's kind of, you know, feels kind of like I went out, you know, that kind of thing. It's it's the way that people experience global flavors. It's the way people try new things, get out of a rut, um, tends to be good for our category. What do you think is maybe one part of uh, building a CPG company that you think might be misunderstood from anyone out there that's listening? I think that people say a lot, and I, I say it too, they say building a brand. You're not just building a brand. You, you're building a business. 
And I think that the last couple of years have been very much focused on that brand piece and maybe the back end everyone was, you know, it'll figure itself out. Like, oh, this will get better with volume, you know, but things don't necessarily get better with volume. And I think that people need to, you know, it's something that I just, I think because I was an operator and like a very tactile brick and mortar operator, um, you know, I had to learn the marketing stuff. And of course I had to learn the business stuff of this particular industry, but the idea that you could just put something really delicious in a really great package and market it on Instagram for relatively not that much, I think was a little bit of a, a false lulling of um, CPG founders in the last couple of years. And I think this is going to be when we really need to figure out the back-end business parts of, you know, of these companies, you know, do they work? That's a great point. And in business, I mean, um, I'd imagine you're referring to obviously like, what are your gross margins? How is this going to be sustainable in the long term? Yeah. And the sales mix again, you know, is every account, you know, working? And and how do you measure the success of an account? The way that you measure success at Target is totally a thousand times different than the way you measure success at Whole Foods, which is totally different from how you measure success on Amazon and on, you know, like, Everything has to be very deliberate, especially now because all of a sudden, you know, a lot of people had had a lot of folks behind them saying, oh, well, you know, we're, we're here for you. We'll give you the time to figure it out. You'll figure it out. And then all of a sudden they're calling those folks and they're like, what are, you know, when are you going to be profitable? And they're like, you've never asked me that question ever. Like you've literally never asked me that question in the last four years. Now all of a sudden you care? Like what just happened? You know, it's a weird time in that respect. But the good news is a lot of people have gotten sort of over that initial, there is a product market fit. There is something there. There's there's a nugget, you know, and now it's just like, okay, build the back end to really support it and and then wait for this, you know, shit storm to pass and then we'll all be in great shape. <laughs> My final question to you is, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? On the personal side, there's a book by Virginia Woolf called A Room of One's Own. It kind of changed my life. I'll leave it at that. On the professional side, I think it really was the Debbie Millman book, Brand Thinking, because, again, she interviews all of these people really digging into what makes a brand and what resonates and how does that manifest itself in design and how is design and brand connected but not the same thing. So I just, it really, it taught me about Jungian archetypes, you know, which is really fun and really a cool brand exercise to do as a brand, you know, so I would say that one. Cool. I'm so excited to add these two to our book list because I do not think anyone's brought these two up. So excited to also read them as well. Allison, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Awesome. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Allison. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.